The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. On foundations, and I've had several people ask me about if I would be teaching anything on eschatology or the study of last things is really the best translation way of putting it. Um, And so... Starting that today here, we're going to delve into this as much as we can. This is uh, about five and a half pages, six, five and a half. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to cover everything on here. I have to skip a few things, but, you know, we'll we'll get through it as best we can here. Um, And this is, let me say, just from the get-go, this is one of the most powerful and liberating truths I've ever come to experience in the things of God, the truth of biblical eschatology and uh, let me just say from the onset uh, studying eschatology or the last days sometimes we say the end times that's really not the right way to translate eschatology it's really last things but either way um, is not difficult to understand it's not confusing it's not impossible and hard to follow Um, it seems that way sometimes because of uh, a certain way of teaching it, uh, which we'll jump into, known as dispensationalism, which is a very minority teaching, um, predominantly in the U.S., in American evangelicalism. Um, It's by no means uh, the majority view in Christianity throughout the world, uh, and it was never around even until the 1800s, so it it never existed in church history. And so while some of that can be shocking to you, that's a very great liberating truth here. So what, what I'm going to try to do here, I, I'm probably already planning to answer some questions going forward in the next week or two, um, perhaps. But, you know, being that there's so few of us here, pres- physically here today, um, feel free if you have questions or comments as we're going along the way. And, um, you know, that'll be fine. You can, we can be interactive if we need to. So uh, let's jump into it here. Last days, and then here's the intro, top of page one. The Bible speaks quite a bit about the one and only last days. In doing so, the phrase, the last days, is a technical term that always and only refers to the last days of the Mosaic or Old Covenant age. The the biblical last days does not refer to the end of human history. While this is a shocking surprise to many American evangelicals today, certainly not all, uh, it has been readily understood throughout church history and even most of the church or much of the church world today. While I understand that it can be difficult to accept that the last days are about the end of the old covenant age and not the end of the world when you've been taught otherwise, I want to submit to you that if we remove our preconceived doctrinal ideas, which is what we're going to try to do today, and look objectively at Scripture, then we can easily see and understand this powerful truth. And understanding this truth, that the last days are indeed past days, can bring untold peace and blessing into your own heart and life. Hallelujah. Um. Again, this is certainly one of the most powerful truths I've ever been, you know, fortunate enough to 
learn, you know, in the things of God. There's, there's multiple things, but this is right up there with uh, powerful, paradigm-shifting. Uh, the, the peace that it ministers to you is just profound. Um, our friend of this ministry, Dr. Lynn Hiles, who's been here with us before, um, Lynn had a, a powerful story he shared one time with, he was preaching in Oklahoma, Tulsa, I believe, and after he got through preaching, this couple, or excuse me, a couple of people, not a couple, uh, came up to him after the service, and they were in tears, because he, he was teaching on this, fulfilled eschatology, and they were an older couple, not a couple, sorry, just two people, you just used to, it was a brother and a sister, so they weren't, you know, they weren't a couple, you know. Uh, Anyways, so uh, they were in tears telling him that neither one of us ever married, neither one of us had kids, and the reason they didn't was because they were constantly being told, it's it, all the signs are here, isn't it so obvious? Jesus can come back any day now. And, and, and there are several verses, and Jesus quotes one of the, the verses in the New Testament, it's from the Old Testament, you know, about uh, warning those who nurse, or King James says bear suck, who nurse in those days and and uh, so they, they were taught, you know, this is it, the end is here, and uh, several decades later, the end never came, and so they missed out. Lynn himself, and I've shared this before, when Lynn was in high school, uh, as a teenager, of course, Lynn was part of a Pentecostal holiness group. Anybody know what that means if, when I say that? Nobody? Really? All right, well, uh, stuff like this. Women cannot wear any kind of pants at all. So let's see here, one, two, three. Yeah, you're all going to hell. So now, but that's that's what they believe. And that's literally, got to have long hair, can't wear makeup, um, can't wear stirrups. You know what a stirrup is? Earrings, because they stir up the devil. If you wear it, that's, that's worldly. Everything's always about worldliness. Uh, no makeup, because that's Jezebel paint, you know. Good old sister Jezebel, it's Jezebel paint. And um, no... TV because you don't want that television set in your house. All that filth from Hollywood coming in, to, you know, all that kind of. Um, and, and there's just, you know, you, there's you're not allowed to do mixed bathing. You know what mixed bathing is? Swimming, but it, it sounds worse if you call it bathing. So you can't have boys and girls or male and female in the same body of water, same pool. Mixed bathing, yeah. Um, so, anyways, Lynn was in one of those kind of traditions. And he wasn't allowed to take uh, physical education, I think it's because he couldn't wear the shorts or there were boys and girls in there together in shorts, something like that. And so they, uh, his pastor comes with him to try to plead the cause and understand, understand that for sure. And they're at the high school, uh, Lynn, his pastor, and the principal. And the principal tells them, essentially, said, I, I appreciate you guys coming you know coming in here and you coming in here for Lynn and I appreciate your convictions but you know all I can tell you is I have to go by the law and according to you know the laws here in uh, West Virginia I can't graduate you without two physical education credits and so I just can't help you there sorry and the pastor leans over to Lynn this is the 1970s and says son don't worry about it Jesus will be back before the 80s ever get here you know and so in other words and, and yeah, in other words, 
investing in your future and having an education isn't important because after all, look around, all the signs are here. Jesus will be back any day now. And so people have been robbed. My dad, my dad will tell you, uh, as he has learned these biblical eschatology uh, around on, pretty much on course as I have over the last several years. Um, he was robbed because he, he was taught that same mentality. And he didn't invest in his future as he should have, you know, as he could have, as he had potential to. Because after all, Jesus will be here any day now. And this is, this is a big problem, you know, basing, um, bi taking the scripture and trying to understand and discern the times and the scriptures based on the daily news headlines. That's a problem. And I don't know why we would go to news outlets, you know, who have nothing to do with, I mean, there might be some boring, you know, some saved people on there, but that's not what it's about. It's news. And at best, probably about a, if we're lucky, probably 50 to 75% of what we're hearing is true anyways, you know, because most of the media, uh, it's no small secret, is as much about their own agenda as they are actually reporting news. And that's just a fact, you know. Um, yeah, oh man. And so I don't, I wouldn't go to the, you know, I don't know what news outlets you like, you know, more Republican, more Democrat, more conservative, more liberal, more far left. I, you pick, you know, I'm not going to go to any of them to find out if I'm saved or not, or if there is a God or not, or if it is the God of the Bible or not. So why in the world would I go to these people to find out if we're in the end times, so-called, or the last days, or all this kind of stuff? Uh, I just wouldn't recommend it. Uh, there's a popular saying, I can put the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and know the times are in. Well, good luck with that. The same people who have been saying that for 50, 60, 70 years have been telling us on and on and on and on that the end is here, and yet it's not come. And that's because the biblical end is behind us, not in front of us. And, and more on that as we unpack that. Um, so indeed, the last days are past days. And that is a beautiful truth. And so, how many of you were raised in here with any version of the left behind? Uh, do you know what I mean when I say left behind? Okay, in some level. You're going to get a chip in your hand or your forehead. It could be uh, credit cards. You, if you guys remember when cards, because they said, I don't know who, somebody started saying that all barcodes have 666 in them in the... I don't know what you'd call it, the technology there, I guess, Bar, you know, coded in there somehow. And I share these examples a lot, but man, it's so, so, I think we've all been there at some time or another. Cell phones, because the mark of the beast will be in your hand or on your head. What about that? It's in my hand and my head. How about that? You know, well, yeah, the whole whammy. <laughs> Get both. Who needs hand or head? I'll take them both, you know. Um of course, Ronald Reagan, these are just famous examples I, I usually share when we talk about this. Ronald Reagan had six letters in his first, middle, and last name. So six, six, which the mark of the beast, the number of the mark of the beast in the Bible is not 666. It's the numerical value 666, but nobody ever tells us that for some reason. And we've all been told and just thought it was 666. That is not what scripture says at all. But Ronald Reagan had six, six, and six in there. So he had to be, well, that didn't work out, you know. And then it, uh, Gorbachev, because he had the birthmark or whatever it was on his head. So that was the sign that he was uh, Antichrist or one of them, beast. 
Um, who else was there? Bin Laden was one of them. And then uh, Saddam Hussein was supposed to be one of them. Or, or was one of them that was supposed to be. Any others anybody can think of off the top of your head? What's that? There's been so many. That's right. Yeah. Um, of course, Obama was. And that, you know, it, it, just take your pick. Some people probably, you know, well, Trump, Trump, because his name is Trump, and in the book of Revelation, it mentions several times the trumpets, the last Trump, you know, just, and take that and try, it's just so, it's silly. And I hate to admit that I, I've been there. I mean, when all you know is all you know, that's all you know. So when you can, when you're out of it and you can look back, I guess you can, you're laughing at yourself, you know, and you're not certainly trying to be mean to anyone who's in that, but trying to offer it. And a very liberating alternative that has existed for church history as opposed to this less technically less than 200-year-old uh, left-behind stuff. And so, um, let, let, let's, uh, what's that? Oh, yeah, that's what I specialize in, being called a heretic. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, you've you got to be the nicest heretic I know. You are. I'm pretty nice. I use sarcasm, though, to tr not to be a jerk, but I, I like to use sarcasm because it can really, it can really, it's a powerful way to get something across, to be honest with you, if you use it the right way. But it does just come across like you're being a jerk all the times, which I'm really not a jerk as far as I know, but uh, maybe I need to find a new method of conveying things besides sarcasm. I have a double doctorate in sarcasm. So anyways, uh, let, let's keep reading here. Check this out. Number two. Dispensationalism, that is the left behind doctrine, you know, a secret rapture, a literal physical mark of the beast, um, a restored temple in uh, Jerusalem, etc., 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 is a new theology. And this isn't, nobody debates this, not even people who hold to this theology debate this because it's just a fact. Is a new theology invented by a man named John Nelson Darby in the early 1800s, and it started coming into prominence around the 1830s. Now, I, I shared this last week, but I went ahead and put them on your paper here, or I mentioned something about it, but um, to learn more about the origins and the influence of dispensationalism, you can check out the videos listed below. I mean, you know, if you feel so inclined. Uh, Bruce Gore, who's a wonderful historian and minister out uh, in the state of Washington, he has a teaching, that's, and that's the direct name of them. You know, you just type all this into YouTube and you'll find this. John Nelson Darby and Dispensationalism. Next one's John Alley. He's an Australian minister. Uh, dispensationalism, the heresy that caused the current cultural defeat of the Western church. And then number three is by a guy named Stephen Anderson. Have any of you ever heard of Pastor Stephen Anderson? He is a wild dude. So, so I'm not endorsing wholesale... <laughs> Uh, Bruce Gore is a Presbyterian, so a Calvinist. I have met Bruce online. I interviewed him. He's one of the nicest and most intelligent men I think I've ever met. Um, wonderful guy. Uh, John Alley is a full-blown, charismatic, fulfilled eschatology. Him and Jamie Englehart used to lead another network together, and I think with someone else maybe. So he's right in line with where we are. Stephen Anderson is an independent fundamental Baptist who thinks all of us are going to hell for being charismatics. So I'm not fully endorsing the guys, but I'm just telling you, you can get some, you know, God can speak through a donkey, right? It's, you know, it's in the Bible. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I just throwing that out there. But he's got a, a documentary on this that is so, so good. It's called, and he shows you the, because a lot of this stuff's called Zionism, uh, and I'm not casting dispersions here. John Hagee, you might know who John Hagee is. John Hagee would be a full blown Christian Zionist. Well, the Jews, the religious Jews, are they don't understand why Christians, certain Christians, dispensationalist Zionists, have this whole construct. They don't get it, and they're not cool with it. And he breaks that down. He talks to several Jewish rabbis and uh, really gives you the history of a lot of stuff of how this came to fruition. It's really, really, it's very well done. I can't recommend just that, not his whole ministry, but because uh, he's a the, one of the funniest things that happened to him, Stephen Anderson. It, it shouldn't be funny, but if you know who he is, it's a riot. This guy, he lives in Tempe, or as they say it out there, Tempe, Arizona, and he became famous, nationally famous, a handful of years ago because he was coming across the border, uh, you know, I guess back into the States or whatever. And the, you know, they, at the Border Patrol, they wanted him to get out, get out of your car and all that. And he, you know, pretty politely, you know, well, why? And they never would give him a reason why. It was an abuse of authority. It was, well, because I said. And he know this guy knows his laws as far as those, you know, things. he's a very, speaks like five languages, you know. Anyways, uh, so they break his window and tase him and drag him and kind of rough him up a little bit, which if you know who he is, just the, just thinking of Stephen Anderson getting tased is sad and funny, if in a sad and funny kind of way. But uh, anyways, he actually took him to court and won. So that was uh, good for him. But I got to move on from Stephen Anderson. But he's a funny dude, man. He, he's, he's got videos where he uh, jumps up on top of his pulpit, you know, and his King James only independent fundamental Baptist church, you know, and jumps on top of it and shouts and screams and hollers. I don't mind getting loud, but I don't know why you got to treat your old, poor old pulpit that way, you know. But <laughs> anyways, he is a riot. Hallelujah. And that's much more courteous than he'd ever say anything about me. <laughs> All right, number three. Um, while there are many unique distinctives of dispensationalism. I want to point out one in particular for today, and we may get to more as time goes on. But So check this out. Top of page two on point 3a. In stark contrast to the teachings found throughout church history, dispensationalism teaches that the church is supposed to and will fail in its mission and will have to be rescued by God by literally being taken off of the planet. Now, none of this is hyperbole. This I'm using their own verbiage, and none of this is a caricature or hyperbole at all, uh, what I'm communicating here. By literally being taken off of the planet before Satan and his cohort, cohorts take over the earth, while the Lord kills billions of people before ultimately destroying the planet as a whole. This is known as the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, pause tape, of course, there's also mid-trib and post-trib. That, that just means if you believe this version, you know, where do you put the rapture? Before the seven years of hell break out, right in the middle of it, three and a half years, or after it? And some people say there is no rapture, there's only a post-trib, one final coming. So when, pe when people who are dispensationalists, when they say, if they believe in the rapture, when they say the second coming, they're not talking about the same thing. 
the, the, the rapture is a secret event where the Lord will supposedly take millions or billions or whatever they believe people are actually saved. Um, like if you're, King, if you're independent, fundamental, Baptist, King James only, um, and you don't think anybody else is saved, then you only believe like a couple of million people maybe are going to, you know what I'm saying? So that's, so it depends on the group and how many they think are actually saved or whatever. Um, now, and then mid-trib and post-trib. Uh, are you sticking with me so far? Making sense? Okay, good deal. So there's, you know, Perry Stone. Uh, you might know who Perry Stone is. Perry Stone is definitely an incredible, incredible, awesome, anointed man of God. Matter of fact, when me and Kara went to get our rings, uh, Perry was right there uh, in the store in front of us and there before, and then we were standing next to us. He's a big guy. He's bigger than you would think he is. He's surprisingly just taller and bigger and, than you would think he is. Man, he had a bag of chips, good old Perry, and it was uh, it was scary. If you'd have got your hand too close to him, you'd have lost it because he was just eating those chips, and there were crumbs all over that poor worker lady's desk. You know, I mean, Brother Perry was hungry, and I get maybe the rapture was coming, and he wanted to get his favorite chips in right before Jesus, you know, I don't know. It was a it was a hot mess, and he had his jumpsuit on. This athletic sports jump, you know, it was it was quite the hoot. Um, our good friend uh, from Tennessee, Craig, who I mentioned a lot because he's Jensen's cousin, he also knows Perry very well, and he grew up with Perry, uh, staying in their home on the weekends when he'd preach there where they were at, and so uh, not really a connection to Perry, but just a little bit there. But Perry's ministry is in Cleveland, Tennessee, just outside of Chattanooga, where we. Uh, where Brother Norville's ministry is at. So Cleveland, somehow or another, is kind of a hotbed for several well-known ministries. Um, anyways, all right, picking up there, uh, where I put also mid-trib or post-trib, the, the idea that the blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled sons and daughters of God are supposed to be weak, defeated, and helpless while the devil takes over is utterly foreign to church history, and more importantly, to the Bible. Conversely, there are many verses that speak of God's kingdom being victorious and reigning in the earth as opposed to being weak and defeated by Satan. And here are literally just a few of them, but I have several listed. Um, it is pivotal, and we're about to read these, it is very pivotal that we, the church, the church who's been affected by this teaching, which is a very a minority, but but it's certainly prevalent in America, um, it's pivotal we repent or change our mind and change what we believe about this. To me, it's almost, I don't understand when I look back on it now, it's hard for me to understand how I could believe that the church was supposed to lose. It feels like such an insult to the Lord that he would, yeah, because also part of the teaching is, is and it gets into the, uh, I'd have to look, I want to say Second Thessalonians. Um, but the, it, it's, the teaching is literally this, that there will be a peace treaty between the Antichrist and, uh, I guess, Israel, which there's not a single verse in the Bible that even hints as half a much such a thing happening. And that when that happens, the Holy Spirit will literally be taken off the earth or will leave because, you know, he's, God, he's going to get out of here. 
and then the church will be raptured. But then they say that during the tribulation, like, you've, like you and I, you know, we have friends who have heard the gospel. Maybe they believe it in their mind, but they've never taken the plunge. They've never actually received salvation and walked with Jesus. I mean, we all know people like that, right? I would think. Um, then, so the idea is that during that time, people like that will start you know, getting saved, even though it'll be a very tumultuous time to say the least. But they say it'll be the biggest revival in human history. And because of that, God's favorite people, the Jews, will finally get saved in droves and masses. So in other words, God is going to take the Holy Spirit off the earth He's going to move the blood-bought, born-again people of God off the earth. And after he gets rid of his bride, the saints, and the Holy Spirit, who is God, somehow after that, the biggest revival the world's ever had is going to happen. What in the sweet name of hallelujah, how could that one plus one is not equal in two here? You know, something's off here. And so, but that's the teaching. I think that's uh, very, very flawed. Now, check these verses out, though, that teach us far from everything going to hell in a handbasket and us losing. Notice what the scriptures say, Dan, Dan, starting in Daniel chapter 2. Powerful verses here. And then this is verse 28, and then same context, uh, then it's verse 44. However, there is a God, uh, Daniel talking to King, King Nebuchadnezzar here. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what would take place in the latter days or the last days. In the days of those kings, and he had listed which kings they were, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. In other words, it won't ever be taken over and given to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it itself, this kingdom of God, will endure Forever. And without going belaboring all the details, um, the Lord re reveals here four particular kingdoms. Um, help me out here, Orla. The first one was the then kingdom of Babylon. And then he revealed uh, uh, the Greek Empire, wasn't it, with Alexander the Great? Then the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was what? The, the empire dominating the known civilized world when Jesus was on the planet. They were under Roman occupation, right? And so, like in Luke chapter 2, it says that Caesar put out a, either a census or a tax, and it says in most of your translations, throughout the whole earth. And that word earth doesn't mean the entire cosmos. Uh, it means, it's the Greek word oikomene, and it means the Roman Empire, which was... The king, it was the world, if you will, you know, uh, the, the, the kingdom of kingdoms on the planet. I don't know how else to say it. But during that time, Daniel says here, God's kingdom will come and it will rise up. This Roman Empire will come to an end, and it did, and yet the kingdom of God will endure forever. So all these other kingdoms have an end date, whenever that is. But God's kingdom will endure forever. Hallelujah. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, bottom of page 2. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And notice what he did. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
I want you to think with me here. This is something that's obvious, but it's, it, it's, you might have to think about it. It's obvious, but it's not. When would Jesus have presented himself before the Father in grand king, kingly fashion? Can you give me a, a guess? After the resurrection, particularly the ascension, which would have been, now think about that. That's important because, of course, we know immediately after the resurrection, he said, hey, don't touch me because I've not yet ascended to your father and my father. He still had to, that was, so in Acts chapter 1, what happens? Jesus tells them, Jesus tells the first century believers right there, minus Judas, uh, he tells them that you, you will be endued with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which was about to happen. They had already been born again, but they still needed the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, he says, And you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? And they did. We know from history they, and from Scripture as well that they did that. Um, but then, of course, Jesus, what? Goes up out of their midst, and the angel talks to him and says, you know, you'll see him in like fashion. So Jesus then was ascended before the Father. And this, this is all important because we're talking about the kingdom of God here. In Acts chapter 2, which we'll take a brief look, look at, Peter's first sermon was essentially saying, this Jesus that you, you wicked men you know, murdered and crucified, he is the son of David, the king, 2 Samuel 7, that all us Jewish people have been waiting on. The one with an everlasting kingdom. All the Jews knew this prophecy from 2 Samuel 7. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 is telling them he's the son of David. And today his kingdom is inaugurated and King Jesus has set up shop. Get on board. You know, that's basically. And 3,000 people. See, the first day of Pentecost, when Moses was given the law, 3,000 people died or put to death. But on the true, fulfilled, new covenant day of Pentecost, 3,000 people didn't receive death. They received eternal life. That's awesome. And that was the day the kingdom was inaugurated, right? So uh, that's, that's, uh, that was kind of a lot of details. I hope that makes sense. But nonetheless, we'll read this verse here if I can make myself read it. Kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with, with clouds, uh, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So don't believe anyone who tells you that we're supposed to lose. No, thank you. Now, throughout history, of course, Things ebb and flow, and there's good times and there's bad times, and there's uh, a myriad of ways of looking at that from, you know, geopolitical aspects to any number of other ways. Suffice it to say, kingdoms, j just in the last 2,000 years, kingdoms have come and kingdoms have gone, but the kingdom of God is still here, and there's, there's nothing that could ever stop that. Isaiah 9, top of page 3. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now notice this. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Next one, Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 14. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. Now that right there, that first verse, that's really important, as we'll see later on, because the book of Hebrews quotes this verse in Hebrews chapter 10 to say his 2,000 years ago, Hebrews 10, his coming is at hand. He, the author of Hebrews, changes it to he will not delay. He is coming. So that's important. But look at what the next part says. For the earth will be filled with the devil and his cohorts taken over and God's got to rescue his pathetic church. No, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Whew, that's good stuff. Hallelujah. And then a New Testament verse. And again, this is just a selection of verses pretty much off the top of my head as I was putting this together. There's so many more. Jesus here, Matthew 13. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it's full grown, it is larger than the, uh, the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. And obviously he was making a point there that the kingdom of God will provide protection, rest, shelter, salvation, etc. for people, you know, using... Uh, nature there to, to get his point across in the parable but you see the point there is that the kingdom will grow and grow and and in the first century it looked impossible this small band following this zealot claiming to be a messiah and it if that's you know if that's not bad enough 12 13 guys probably can't take over a roman empire but then they put him to death you know well guess what rome's kingdom has come and gone but jesus kingdom grew and grew and grew and it will grow forevermore and is still standing. So that's you know that's the point there. Now, check this out here. Uh, switching gears from that particular dispensational distinctive. Check this out. I want to get this across, and this will be a little difficult if this is new to anyone watching or, or anyone here. Um, I we developed this thoroughly from Scripture, um, and a whole lot. More can be said than what will be said, but I think what we have is sufficient here. So check this out. The last days. Bottom of page three. I wrote here, while it's easy for us to think that when the Bible speaks of the last days, that it's speaking of the last days of human history, in large part due to the influence of dispensationalism in America. But upon closer inspection, we can clearly, and this is what I'm submitting here, we can clearly and undeniably see that the biblical last days always and only refers to the last days of the old covenant age. Now, and this, notice this here. The biblical last days began uh, in 30 AD on the day of Pentecost. Now, Jesus died when he was 33, but it was actually in the year 30 AD, just to make that clear there if that's confusing for anyone. Uh, in 30 A.D., on the day of Pentecost, and we know that, as we'll see here, because Peter says that, 
and it ended in 70 AD with the destruction of the Jewish temple, priesthood, and the religion as a whole. There is no biblical Judaism today. There's what they call uh, rabbinic Judaism, um, but it's, it revolves around the rabbis and the local synagogues, but there is no Jewish temple. Um, and a lot of people are, are waiting for one to be rebuilt. Even if it were to ever happen, it wouldn't mean anything prophetically. I was reading, me and Kara last night, looked at, there's a verse in Jeremiah chapter 3. And the Lord says, uh, as they were you know, in captivity at that point, but the Lord says that the Ark of the Covenant would never be built again. Talking about the time when the new covenant came. And that's almost literally what it says in Jeremiah 3. It might be verse 14 or so. Let's just look at it real quick there. Take a pause. and uh, it, Sometimes it's good, helpful to quote things, but sometimes it's good to take a stop real quick and just look at something, you know. Uh, real quick here, Jeremiah 3. Let's see here. Round verse uh, uh, 15, we'll start. It says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It will be in those days, prophesying here, new covenant, it will be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it will not come to mind. Nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will be gathered to it. Now, you, got, you have to understand the types and shadows. Jerusalem means what? City of... Salem. I know it's Salem. Yeru, Salem, Salem, somebody, anybody? Going once. City of peace. So we are, Hebrews 12 says, you are, you have come unto now the heavenly Jerusalem. So the city of peace or the new Jerusalem is not a place. It's not a piece of land somewhere. It's a people. Because Jesus said, you are a city set on a hill. And then, nobody asked you, Siri. Maybe she was amening me. Yeah, yeah. Maybe she amened me. I don't know. Lock it up, Siri. Um, you're not kidding. <laughs> so the, the city of peace is what we are. We're, we're the people who have the peace that comes from knowing the true and living God, and that's what we share with the world. So, uh, anyways, now back to our uh, notes here. Check these verses out. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be a uh Raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream into it. Well, who has the gospel gone to? Only the Jews? That's what they thought was supposed to happen. No, all people, Jew and Gentile. And many people will come and say, 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. Think about that. That he may teach us. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us one of the foundational promises of the new covenant is that you will not have to say to your neighbor, teach me of the Lord. In other words, the people were dependent on the priests and the prophets, right? And certainly scripture shows us there's the fivefold ministry gifts who are graced and responsible for teaching the body of Christ. But the difference is all of us now have full direct access to God as opposed to a high priest who could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year for the fullest access, access that anyone had at that time. You know, so now we all have, Ephesians chapter 4 literally says that Jesus teaches us. And of course, we know he does that by his spirit within us. So you understand what he's saying here, this uh, language, this verbiage. Now he says, um, uh, for the law will go forth from Zion. The, what is the, that's, he means the new covenant. Love one another as I have loved you, the new covenant law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples. Now notice this, and there's a lot to say about that, but notice this. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. In other words, we, the people of God, what did Peter say? Peter said, you're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That's what we are. We're the people of God. And so the people of God, we have turned, unlike the Jewish people at this time who were a tribal warlike people, we conversely, we turn our swords into plowshares. So we no longer depend on weapons and force and violence. Our message is the gospel of peace. Jesus, turn the other. If someone hits you on this, turn and offer the other one. Now, that's hard, but I'm just saying that's that's the love of God within us is capable of that. So it's a different message. It's not. I'll prove to you that Yahweh's the true and living God. How? By killing you and all your tribe. Well, no. Our God finally comes and says, "I'll prove that I'm victorious." Get him, Jesus. How are you going to do it? Peter's taking up swords, chopping off ears. I mean, you got to, you know. Jesus, I'll lay my life down for them, and then I'll resurrect. And when he could have resurrected and brought retribution, all he brought back was love, mercy, and the offer of salvation. So it's this message of the gospel of peace, in other words. If you over-literalize this stuff, you really missed the point here. So, all right, Joel chapter 2, got to move on. Do my best here. Joel 2 says, it will come about after this. Now, this is really important because Peter preaches this on the day of Pentecost and quotes these verses that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men dream dreams. Young men see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky, on the earth. Blood, and by the way, in the coming weeks, I'll probably get into this and explain some of these, this language here. Um, anyways, um, wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness. The moon will be turned into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved or delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now notice that. 
And we'll get, if you're not familiar with what happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, um, that's what he's saying here. For on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. And we'll get more into that if you're not familiar with that as time goes on. But over a million Jews from the middle of 66, three and a half years, the middle of 66 AD till 70 AD, over a million Jews were killed by the Romans and a few hundred thousand of them were taken into slavery and captivity and dispersed and uh, that type of thing. So, but whoever called on the Lord was saved. And many sources tell us that no, that history, as far as they know, not a single Christian died during this time because they, they took heed to the Lord's warnings. The Lord told them in Matthew 24, Luke 21, talking to his disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the hills, flee to the mountains. And that's what the Christians did because they believed Jesus' message. And we know where they went. Now, what was really interesting, in order to go where they went, the Christians who saw Titus come, this is all historically documented from Christian and non-Christian sources, uh, General Titus came to Jerusalem with his armies overlooking Jerusalem and nobody, no, nobody to this day knows why. Uh, it's an absolute mystery of history. Didn't mean to rhyme there, but I couldn't help it. Uh, sorry. Uh, it's an absolute history mystery. But he left for, and I forget, you know, two or three months, I think. But when the Christians saw that, they left. They went to a place called Mount, most of them, to a place called Mount Pella. And I believe it's P-E-L-L-A. Well, Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the hills, flee to the mountains. Now, this was interesting. In order to get to Mount Pella, you had to, leaving Palestine, you had to cross over the Jordan River, which I think was a prophetic statement because in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, whenever they first came into the promised land for the first time, the Lord told them, have the priests take the Ark of the Covenant and go stand in the Jordan River. And when they do, the Lord told them, I will make the water, I'll, I'll make a wall just supernaturally, the Lord made the water wall up and stop, and then the rest of the water drained on out, and they crossed over on dry land. But there's that prophetic truth of crossing the Jordan River, which has many sim symbolic, powerful truths to it, and then they left. They, it was shaking the dust off their feet, as it were, and, you know, going on. And so um, the, the events of 70 AD are, are so incredible and, and horrific, and profound and are one of the most important things that's ever happened in church history and far too few of us have have known anything at all almost about it thoughts questions comments all right i'm trying to go as quick as i can here look at this verse hosea 3 5 this is uh i like this one afterward the sons of israel will return and seek the lord their god and david their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness. When? In the last days. And so we know this happened in the first, in, I mean, just in so many different ways. Um, but what, what caused them in this verse to tremble before the Lord? His goodness. Man, he's better than we thought. You know, because Jesus came and revealed what Abba was truly, perfectly like. And that kind of goodness will make your brain shake, rattle, and roll, you know? Now, Peter here, in Acts chapter 2, 
Check this out, verses 14 through 17. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. That, quote, it shall be in the last days. And I didn't quote all of it because we read it from Joel a few minutes ago. Blood, fire, vapor of smoke, all that. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we read those, so that's why I didn't add them all. But notice what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. Peter said, this is that. Now, if Peter said, this is the blood, the fire, the vapor of smoke, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he said it's being fulfilled then and there, then it cannot be fulfilled today when there's a lunar eclipse or a so-called blood moon which has nothing to do with biblical prophecy. It's, that's missing the point. That is taking modern Western thinking and superimposing it over ancient Eastern, you know, the, the, the Near East, the ancient Near East, which Israel was a part of, uh, over their thinking, all right? And apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, the Greek word, the book of the apocalypse, right? Apocalyptic literature is, its, is a genre all of unto itself. The Bible is full of different authors, different mentalities, different uh, paradigms, different experiences, and it's full of different genres. You, we, we get that, right? That's really important to get. There's wisdom literature. There's, there's poetry. There's uh, really uh, the parables are, are their own type of... Uh, it doesn't have to be in literature. It can be spoken, but that's its own thing. Um, uh, there's the, of course, historical genre. Uh, any number of different genres in Scripture. But the apocalyptic is one unto itself that many authors of Scripture utilize. Um, so think about this. In a modern Western mindset, when we read a Scripture, Jesus coming on the clouds, we just think... Jesus, standing on some clouds, literally. But a Jewish person didn't think that way. If you can, this is not in your notes. Turn quickly to Isaiah 19. Let me show you this. Because Jesus didn't just say this stuff. He was a prophet, capital P, the prophet, you know, the prophet. You don't understand, but he called himself a prophet. Jesus was a Jewish prophet who ministered and spoke and did things that Jewish people understood on some level that, their own Jewish prophets did, you know. So check out Isaiah 19. Verse 1. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. All right? So this was a, there's many other scriptures. Uh, Psalm 88 says, The Lord makes the clouds his chariots. When the scriptures talk about a cloud coming, it's synonymous with saying a judgment coming. All right? Now, and the Jewish people, like we say, it's raining cats and dogs. We know what that means. If we said that, perhaps, to someone here, to th you know, someone, uh, Bill and Ted, and you might know Bill and Ted. You guys know Bill and Ted? Well done. It's, this generation's got hope yet. Now, uh, 
if you know if someone trans you know time traveled here and you said it's raining cats and dogs, they might, if they even understood your language, but assuming they did, they might think, oh my God, what's going on in the world today? It rains cats and dogs? Holy hallelujah. And then if you've said it rains anything, people from before the time of the flood, they'd say, what's that? What's rain? Never heard of that. What do you mean? Stuff, water falling from the sky? What in the, what's happened? You know, so uh, we need to learn to appreciate these things, but of course we, we have to be taught so we can understand and there's other verses that talk about the Lord coming in the clouds. It's not a literal, visible, physical coming. It, it never means that. All right. Now, uh, back here, and I'm doing my best to wrap up here. Check this out. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, uh, the, excuse me, the author of Hebrews, who we don't know, but uh, for sure who it was. But the author says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has in these last days spoken to us through his son. So the author of Hebrews said that he was living in the last days. Just as Peter said uh, about 35 years before this was written, thereabout, that he was living in the last days. Right. So the last days, it's been said the last days started on the day of Pentecost and they're still going on. They've been lasting for 2,000 years. Which I think if, if we have any intellectual integrity at all, that just doesn't hold, that's, that really doesn't hold up, you know. And then so people say, well, now we're in the last of the last days. Okay? You just keep whatever you can do to make your theory fit, you know. And um, I, th I think about uh, Hal Lindsey. Uh, and he went, you know, I can't remember if he passed away or not, but he, I think maybe he had a book that was all the rage in uh, the 70s. It was left behind before left behind. It was called Late Great Planet Earth. And it was all this stuff. And basically, I, I think that he pretty much thought the 80s would be the end. And then there was a guy, uh, I think his name was, was it Edgar Wisenhut? I may be getting him confused. Forgive me if I am. But uh, 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988. Didn't work. So then he wrote 89 Reasons. And he even stretched that thing out to not like 93 or 94 and made a lot of money and kind of, I don't know what happened to him since then. He kind of fell off the map. But when he fell, he landed on a big pile of money. So, and then, you know, all that. And then we, and even there's charism, you know, charismatics and, and non-charismatics alike who uh, make these statements and assertions. Uh, Billy Graham uh, once was published as himself, you know, as saying, I forget, you know, it was the 50s or something, but, you know, that the end is basically here and, you know, not going to get too much further than this. And and then, you know, other charismatics, uh, one of my personal heroes, you know, Lester Summerall had, had said that um, history would go no longer than the 2000s, you know, stuff like that. And so um, people are, charismatic or not, are ever predicting the end, and they don't know the end is, the end they're talking about is behind them. It's already come and gone, which is good news. While there are good times and bad times and things ebb and flow, you don't have, as Lynn Hyle says, and as I say, seven years of hell on earth to look forward to in what, what's called the Great Tribulation. All right, that's already come. Another phrase for it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel. That's what's happened in 70 AD. All right. That's the three and a half years that Revelation, I think, 11 and Daniel chapter 12 talk about. That's already come and gone. 
Lynn Hiles, was preaching this one time. And a lady came up to him and was bawling and boohooing and said, if I don't have the great tribulation, if, if the great tribulation's uh, behind us, what do I have to look forward to? Say, huh? Yeah. Maybe something a little better? Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been told there's a seven-year great tribulation? How many of you can tell me a verse in the Bible that says that? I'll, t I'll give you a hint. You, you can't because there isn't one. Yes, but there's a three-and-a-half-year great tribulation that the Bible talks a lot about. Now, how long was the Roman invasion? I've already given you the answer of Jerusalem. Three and a half years, the time of Jacob's trouble. Why, why today, you, all right, you know there's Jewish synagogues, right? Do you know there's not a Jewish temple? The temple was the only place where the, priest, you know, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the, the multiple times a year we had to come and present different offerings and sacrifices and all that. Um, why isn't there one today? It was destroyed. When was it destroyed? 70 A.D. So this stuff is very pertinent and relevant and um, is very good news. Any questions before we wrap up here? I'm, I'm doing my best to get through this here, so I think we're doing okay. If you got to go, you got to go. We get that. But um, any quick questions or anything yet? Holy hallelujah. That woman's getting some progress. Wow. I know you don't care about me preaching, babe, but maybe they want to hear it. So if you could just hold on a minute. That's how it is when you, you I'll preach something for a year. I mean, up one side and down the other, every verse. You, and then six months later, she'll say, oh, I heard Joseph or Andrew or Bill or, or Creflo say the most incredible thing. Oh, my gosh, it's so life changing. And I'm like, yeah, I preached it for a year straight. But I get it. I get it. Last part here, the end of the age. Unfortunately, because of certain Bible translations, did you enjoy that, Kit? Hey! Well done, female. You know how to work the Bible on that? Matthew 24, 34, or Matthew 24, 3. If you want, they got the handouts. But um, un unfortunately, because of certain Bible translations, Primarily the King James, which is a good translation, but it's it's English from, you know, 500 years ago. So we don't always understand the same way. 24, verse 3. Uh, people have thought the Bible was speaking about the end of the world when it was, in reality, it was speaking about the end of the age, i.e., the end of the Old Covenant age in the year 70 A.D. Now, Matthew 24, 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives which this, I believe, fulfilled a very powerful prophecy from the book of Ze Zechariah where he would come and stand on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. I believe this fulfilled that. Um, anyways, tell us when these things will happen. What things? What will be the sign of your coming? Now think about that. The sign of your parousia. The word coming there is the Greek word. They would have said parousia. Parousia literally means your presence, your Presence, arrival, something along those lines. If it was a literal, visible, physical coming, why would you need a sign anyways? 
but they understood from Jewish literature what coming in the clouds, a judgment coming, meant. The Jewish people had experienced it over and over and over again. And of the end of the age. Now, some of your Bibles might say world there, but it's not the Greek word cosmos. It's the Greek word aeon, like we say eons and eons, you know, or something like that. That's the Greek word age. The Jewish people to this day believe in two distinct ages or periods of human history. And we use that. We talk about the Bronze Age, which or the whatever age, you know, and come to an end. And so, but they believe to this day in two distinct periods or ages of human history. The Mosaic Age and then the Messianic Age. They believe the Mosaic Age, the age where the law or Torah rules, you, you could say, is a temporary age. It has an end date. But when Messiah comes, which he's already come, by the way. They're still waiting, but he's come, some of them. Uh, when Messiah comes, because they know the prophecies, 2 Samuel 7 and a bunch of others, he will have an everlasting or unending kingdom and age. Mosaic age, Messianic age. All right, so uh, that's very common belief. In, now, but notice what Jesus tells them, picking up in verse 34. So he goes through all those details. Then he says this, Truly I say to you, which generation? Now, notice he didn't say that generation. He didn't say some future generation. He was talking to his contemporaries and told them, this genera generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What all things? Well, verses 4 through 33, Jesus goes through this powerful, apocalyptic, prophetic a prophecy, but, you know, description of what would happen with the destruction of Jerusalem and all the things in the meantime there. So he did not say the generation in the future that is alive when these things happen 2,000 years later, they will not know. He said this one, the one I'm talking to right now, will not pass away. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came up to them and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Thank God they did. Baptizing them. Now think about that. Because you, your, your intellectual mind says, well, how could those guys in the first century, without jets and without the Internet and da-da-da, how could they spread the gospel to all nations? Well, think with me. Acts chapter 2, the first New Covenant sermon ever preached. What, what did they say there? They said, men from every nation under heaven hear them telling the good news in their own tongue or in their own language so that was being fulfilled right off the, the right off the what bat right off the bat that was already being fulfilled and did you know there are several verses in your bible that say because in matthew 24 15 or 14 i can't remember jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout all the world and then the end will come what end the end of the age do you know there's several verses in your Bible that say on no uncertain terms the gospel was preached to the whole world in the first century? Babe, can you pull up Romans 16 real quick? And this is just one, but there's several. Several, several. Romans 16, verse, uh, what am I looking for? 25. Oh, yeah, we are... I need to move this back, and we're going to do a, a 
because we always have to adjust every single thing on there. That's why it's so small. But we're going to move it back, and that way it'll, if we can get it to where that heater deal's not in front of it, that'll be taken care of soon. Anyways, notice this verse. Now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret from long ages past. Next verse, babe. But is now, this is 2,000 years ago when he wrote this, is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. So Paul said in his lifetime, the gospel's gone out everywhere. doesn't mean every individual, you know what I'm saying? But it means in his lifetime, as Jesus told them, all nations would hear the gospel. Romans chapter 1 says this. Romans chapter 10 says this. Colossians chapter 1 says this. And I know there's more, but those are the ones off the top of my head. That's awesome. Because I've been told we're still waiting on that. But the scriptures are screaming in your face, hello, this already happened. So this end is behind us. That's the point, which is really good news. All right, Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship or reasonable service. And be not conformed to this. What do you want to say? World. My brain wants to say world there, because that's... But it's the Greek word age. It should be translated age. That first century age where the law of Moses was contending, if you will, against the gospel. Uh, i got to move on. 2 Corinthians 4. What is Satan? He's the god of the... What have you ever heard? He's the god of this... I've heard he's the god of this world. Well, that's not what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And what's the context in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4? The law versus the gospel. So they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now here's a powerful one. 1 Corinthians 10 11. Paul goes through uh, Moses and you know hitting the rock and water and all the stuff that the Israelites went through there. He kind of sums it up in the wilderness. Then he says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul said to the Corinthians, Upon us has come the ends of the ages. What ends? The, the latter end of the Mosaic age and the front end of the new Messianic age. All right? And so the ends of the ages had come upon them. Last two verses, Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil world, or the right translation is age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Last verse, Hebrews 9, 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world but now at the end or the consummation of the age, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus was manifested at the end of the age, in other words. And so whenever he was manifested and put away sin, that's when the end of the age was coming about. So 
Um, I will be expounding on more of this, of course, going forward. Uh, this is one I had several people over the last few weeks tell me, come to me and say, hey, when are you going to do the, you're going to, you know, eschatology last days in this? You know, we really, especially because we're living in a crazy time and, and lots of voices are, are, as always, telling us this is the end. This is the end. This is the end. It's not the end. It's not the last days. Now, we're all living in our last days, so we want to make the most of it. But we're not living in the one and only biblical last days, right? Say that again. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't, yeah, yes. That's right. Woo. Amen. That's right. Hallelujah. To you. You gave him cheat notes, didn't you? I know you did. Got a little microphone over there, a little Bluetooth there, whispering all the answers to him. <laughs> um, yes, amen, Ken. Uh, this can be a lot to chew on if it's new to you. Um, consider it prayerfully, biblically. Um, the problem is the, dis the other stuff, it really, really, really hooks into your emotions. Because you can look at the news and you can say, oh, there's this, that, and the other going on. This must be. And it hooks you, and you say, how could this not be the end? But I just want you to understand, for 2,000 years, every Christian generation, someone has risen up and said, oh, it's the end. And only one of them was right. The ones who lived in the first century and wrote the scriptures. The ones who repeatedly said they were in the last days. Uh, they... Put First Peter 4, 7 up, would you? Check this verse out. First Peter 4, 7, I think. Look at this. The end of all things is near. That's pretty clear, right? There's not a lot of wiggle room for the end of all things is near. Well, Peter was... A Jewish apostle to primarily Jewish people. Peter was a Jewish apostle primarily called to Gentiles. So Peter telling his uh, audience here in Asia Minor who understood these Jewish concepts, the end of all things is near. And so in other words, that entire world, because to the Jewish people, uh, like many religious cultures today, it wasn't just, I mean, you could, I'm not saying anyone here is at all. I know you guys. But you, could, you can be what's called a nominal Christian. Go to church here and there, believe in Jesus, doesn't really, but you know, I got a job and I got, to the Jewish people, there was no separation to religion and culture. It, 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 that you guys understand that, right? It, one and the same. There's no, there was no separating secular and spiritual. It was all together. And so he's telling them the end of all things is near, right? Um, and there's many other verses we'll look at going forward here as we establish this a little further. And one reason, I was going to teach on this anyways in this foundations teaching, but when I had several people come to me and say, hey, uh, looking forward to you know doing eschatology on this. And one of the things is right now when things can look so bleak, it is nice to know that while we do have real problems in the world, while there are real struggles, um, it's not the, the end end, so you don't have to live in fear every day. You don't have to worry about, in six years, am I going to have to reject a mark and get my head cut off because, uh, you know, 
whatever, finances and market of beast and the stock market looks bad and you don't have to live in fear like that, all right? You've got a life ahead of you. Um, let's invest in it. Let's invest in our children, in our grandchildren. Let's make the most of it as best we can and be stewards of the time that we have and live godly and faithfully and honorably and be part of the kingdom of God that is victorious and has no end. Amen? And you get to share this good news with your, your loved ones who think you're crazy when you tell them. But still, it's, uh, if some of them will get it and some of them will uh, very often, um, it's beyond liberating. We have a person who goes to, and I'm finished, but we have a person, and this is such a rarity in the dispensational mentality. We had a person who, when they first came to this church, they told me, or I think they told me personally, um, yeah, and they may have told Kara too, but they told me um, they were new, new to Christianity, uh, totally, and they said, so I don't know how much they knew at that time, but at that time they said, the one thing, as I've been looking for a church, is I am not going to go to some church who says Jesus is about to come back and kill a bunch of people and destroy everything. Which, in the dispensational mindset, you just always assume that's about to happen. Because you've been told for 80 years, it's imminent, it's imminent. It's, it could happen at any time. You know, that type of mentality. But it was refreshing to me that there's someone out there who's saying, no, I'm looking for something else than a Jesus who's going to murder a few billion people and destroy this thing. I think that's awesome, you know. That's a healthy view of Jesus. And so we'll get into the scriptures about the coming of the Lord, uh, the book of Revelation. Um, just a little teaser for you, if you're not familiar with this especially. The book of Revelation uses the words world and earth 81 times, but only three times. See, in other words, if you just read your English translation, you just think it's global, it's cosmic, it's everywhere, it's... And you say, how could this possibly be with the first century and the destruction of Jerusalem? Doesn't it have to be all this, you know? If I say the word apocalypse, what have you been told that that, what do you think of? This utter destruction, mayhem, chaos, bombs going off, nukes everywhere, antichrist peace treaties, planes falling from the sky. I mean, just chaos beyond chaos. And yet the word apocalypse literally means to unveil or to reveal. It has no association with Global chaos, mayhem, and destruction. That's just a myth that we've inserted over the scriptures. Instead of letting the scriptures tell us what they mean. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.